brilliant, it's up there already. Well, it's great to be back in the building, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and if it's a bit cold, I'll try to keep it as short as, as we possibly can. But uh, people start turning blue, I was just saying out there earlier on, then we will stop quickly. Steve, are you coming back up at the end? I'm just finishing it, which uh, we didn't sort that. You've got one? That's great, okay. Oh, it'll be even shorter. Good. <laughs> right, um, thank you very much for those of you who've been praying for Anthea this week. It's been a real success, it seems. She uh, went through surgery, came back the same night, and since then... Um, she's been taking life easier than usual, which is not saying much for her, but uh, I've been managing to pin her down, and uh, she's still got radiotherapy and stuff to come, but so far it's, it's, it's been good. Um, yesterday was a bit frantic because everybody in the family wanted to come and see her, so I was doing lunch for 13, which was interesting, but uh, we got through that one, and uh, it's, it's, it's good. Uh, also, just before I start, about tonight, uh, we've decided that this year we're going to, in the evenings, some stuff on questions people ask and objections people have to Christianity. And what I want to do is not just give a lecture each time, but give you some points that if you're a Christian, you could actually use when you're asked one of these questions. So I hope it's going to be intellectually coherent, <laughs> but it's not going to be particularly difficult. I mean, when I tell you tonight is about, does God exist? Hasn't science disproved it all? You might think, oh, I'm not a scientist. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There are some basic things we can say in any conversation that will make sense. And I just want to go through some of those uh, tonight. Uh, once we get back in here in the evenings, the series will get a little bit more ambitious and it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how many different media we can use in it, things like that, all sorts of different things. It'll be a, more of a presentation and that'll be, that will be, uh, I hope, very enjoyable. But uh, right tonight, that's, that's going to happen. So do come if you possibly can. And uh, that will be tonight. But at the start of a series in the morning as well, we just kicked it off last Sunday evening, and uh, now it's going back to the mornings, and this is called Jesus the Story, because the leadership, having thought about it last year, thought it would be good to go right through the life of Jesus on Sunday mornings. So Steve was saying it feels like Christmas with that last hymn. No wonder. That's by design, because you have to start with the story at the beginning. Okay, we've just had Christmas, but let's look back on the Christmas story. That's why I want to start this morning reading from Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2. Now, if we read the whole Christmas story, we'd be here a while. So I won't do that. I'll just assume you know about the shepherds. <laughs> and we'll do some of the, the, the less traveled bits. So Luke chapter 2 starts by talking about the birth of Jesus at Bethlehem and uh, the way in which the angels appeared to the shepherds and the shepherds came to the manger. But it goes after that, doesn't it? Verse 19, for example. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in their hearts. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for the things they'd heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves, two young pigeons. Now, there was a one in Jerusalem named Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Uh, he, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. 
saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the, failing, the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul also. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She'd lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And the story goes on. It's not quite such plain sailing after that. But to read the next bit, you have to turn back to Matthew chapter 2. And uh, you get the story about the wise men who eventually turned up in the house uh, where uh, Joseph and Mary were. And I'm just assuming that you know that story a bit as well. But uh, let's take the end of that from uh, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. When they, that's the wise men, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Irma. Weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. And Herod the Great had died in the meantime. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Right, that's the story. Let's see if we can put some of those things together. There's a story that Nikita Khrushchev once told in the day of the Soviet Union about a man who used to work in a dockyard uh, on the Baltic City somewhere. And every night he'd come out of the dockyard wheeling a wheelbarrow home with him. And usually there was something very suspicious on top of it, a pile of sawdust or an old coat or something like that. The security guard at the gate was sure that this man was pinching stuff. He wasn't all that honest. And so every night he'd make a beeline for the, the, the wheelbarrow and pull the cover off it and ferret uh, around inside it and never found anything suspicious. And that went on for about 30 years. And they never caught the guy out. Eventually he retired. And the security guard, just as he walked out of the gate for the last time, said, listen, uh, you've been walking through here with your wheelbarrow for 30 years. 
You've not been pinching tools because there were never any tools in your wheelbarrow. You've not been pinching metal or raw materials because there was none of that either. You've not been stealing anything as far as I can see. I know you've been stealing. Tell me what you've been stealing. And the guy just smiled and said, wheelbarrows. <laughs> 30 years worth of wheelbarrows. Sometimes things are so obvious that we just don't notice them. You know, something's plain staring you in the face and you don't see it. So, first let me just, before we get into the story, talk about three things that should be obvious to all of us, but we get so close up to them, you might just miss them. The first thing is that the story of Christianity is told in the way we've been reading it. It's told through a story about somebody's life. It's told through a life, not a list of ideas. Now, with other great thinkers, you could write a, a, a whole long book about their ideas without saying anything about them whatsoever. You just can't do that with Jesus. And so you get four biographies written about Jesus uh, to describe his life and, and to tell people what he was all about. It wasn't just his ideas. In fact, Jesus didn't have a developed philosophy like uh, Karl Marx and other people did. He preached in an elusive, uh, roundabout kind of a way. He tells stories, parables, things like that. And often people didn't really understand what he went on about until he died and risen again. And then suddenly the whole thing broke off because people made connections to that. Oh, that's what it's all about. But still, it took about 300 years, I guess, for the church to work out ideas like the doctrine of the Trinity and so on and work out what exactly it was that Jesus was saying. What really st stuck out to people who saw him to start with was his life. The kind of person he was. They'd never seen anything like this before. And so when you start talking about Jesus... You've got to talk about what happened in flesh and blood. Not just the thoughts he had in his head, not just the ideas that were special, but the kind of life he lived. John said, right at the start of his gospel, we beheld his glory, the glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth in a way that no other human being was. He was just different. And so it's biography. Second obvious but not so obvious idea is there are four versions of the story. And this is pretty unusual because... Um, in those days, biography had really just started. It probably started with a guy called Cornelius Nepos, who lived 100 years before Jesus. But nobody had really ever thought before of sitting down and writing the whole story of somebody's life. And uh, just about seven years after Jesus died, another fellow came along called Plutarch, who started doing lives of the great Greeks and Romans. And he became a great inspiration to Shakespeare, which is another story completely. But biography was just getting going. So the idea that you'd get four lives written about one insignificant character from a minor Roman province, <laughs> that's just outstanding. It doesn't happen anywhere else. And it's just because this one life, which was the explanation of everything that Christianity was about, was such a big life, you had to look at it from different perspectives. And so we get different Gospels telling us, different, giving us a different insight into the nature of Jesus and what he did. And we'll maybe say more about that on the way through the series. But the third thing that you need to look at, right at the start of this Jesus story thing, is each of the biographies focuses in a funny way on the last three years of Jesus' life. Very odd. When you look at Matthew's Gospel, for instance, the first of the four, you get two chapters about the early years and then suddenly, holy, oh, we're in, chapter, we're in the 30th year of Jesus' life. And the years from 30 to 33 are in fine detail. But the whole of the rest of the story is hardly told. When you look at Luke, same sort of thing. Three chapters about Jesus' youth, his infancy and his birth and all of that sort of stuff. And then the next 21 chapters are about the last three years. 
Here's when Jesus was actually teaching and preaching. When he stopped being a carpenter and he became something a little bit more public and prominent. Mark, John, they don't give you anything about Jesus' infant at all. It's all focused on those three years. So a funny kind of biography in lots of ways, isn't it? And it's not that uh, unusual. There's a, a, a website, a Catholic website called the stpeterinstitute.com, and they, they say ancient Greek or Roman biographies, the kind that were being written around this time, are about 10,000 to 20,000 words. And that's about how many words will fit into the length of an ancient scroll. <laughs> you can do anything longer because you'd need a second scroll and that costs money. The four Gospels average around the same. Matthew's about 18,000 words, Mark about 11,000, Luke about 19,000, John about 15,000. So it's a standard biography for the time. And uh, clearly, having that much space, they thought we are not going to divide up the first five years, the next five years, the next five years. We're, we're going to focus on the one thing that's most important to us, which is those last three years of Jesus' life. And we'll see why they're important as we went through. Early biographies are medium-length works and are in no way close to the 500-page histories given by contemporary historians. I'll say, I've been trying to read this last month um, a colossal book by William Shirer, an American correspondent who lived through the Nazi years in Berlin. And uh, he's written a book called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And, you know, after a month of trying, I'm still only 80% of the way through it. I've reached 1944, but we're a fair old way to go because it's a massive, massive story. Now, Jesus is a massive story too, but it's told at very short length. Um, that's Plutarch at the top there, whom I just mentioned. At the bottom, Suetonius, another fellow who started writing biography just after Jesus' day. And one thing you notice about those early biographies is, first of all, they're not always in chronological order. Suetonius said, having given the summary, as it were, of his life, that's the Emperor Augustus, I shall now take up its various phases one by one, not in chronological order, but by categories. When you read the story of somebody's life nowadays, you expect the first chapter to be about his birth, and the next chapter to be about his early years, next chapter to be about school and university or whatever, next chapter to be an early career, marriage, and you go through it in order, aren't you? That's not necessarily the case with biography in those days. And so you'll find that stories come in different orders in different Gospels. They're grouped together so that one can comment on another. And so for somebody to look at the Gospels, oh, well, uh, Matthew has these stories going one, two, three, and Luke has them going two, three, one. Ah, mistake in the Bible. No, it's not. It's just the way that the Gospels were intended to be written. And uh, second, biographies in those days choose to tell only what suits their purposes. They'll miss things out. So it's not unusual that the Gospels focus on one particular period of Jesus' life. It is unusual that they don't talk about much else, <laughs> but uh, they tell only what suits their purpose. Plutarch once said, The multitude of deeds to be treated is so great that I shall make no other preface than to entreat my readers in case I do not tell all of the famous actions or even speak exhaustively at all in each particular case. In other words, there's a lot more I can write about this guy. It's the life of Alexander, in this case, Alexander the Great. But uh, I can't fit it all in, so if I leave things out, don't, don't uh, think that's a failing. I've chosen the things I think are really important. And again, biographies in those days don't always focus on achievements as much as they do on character. Plutarch said, a slight thing like a phrase or jest often makes a greater revelation of character than battles when thousands fall, or the greatest armaments, or sieges of cities. And the Gospels are not so concerned about Jesus' achievements as they are about the little things, the way he dealt with people 
the way he had conversations with individuals and how, how he, he, he combated his opponents, that kind of thing. Because you can often pick up more about a character and get a greater feel for a person's life through those small things than through talking about the major achievements. And in that way, the Gospels fit right into that category and the faithful stories about what Jesus was really like. Okay, let's look back. I said we started last, last week uh, at, at Kevin Kath's house and uh, we had no um, fancy pictures there, so I just did a sheet and we talked about three things really. First of all, the prophecies that led up to Jesus' birth the way in which for hundreds of years before then there had been stories and prophecies of this person who was going to come. Second, the politics of the situation. Jesus came to an unsettled country in which there are all sorts of people looking for the future and saying, are things ever going to be better? And third, we talked about the people who were involved in the story. Zechariah and Elizabeth, um, who were the parents of John the Baptist, and uh, uh, Joseph and Mary, who were the parents of Jesus. And those two couples were right at the start of everything. Why? And we said it was because they were open, they were available, they were flexible, they were prepared for God to do whatever he wanted with their lives. So we filled in the first part of a, 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 a time line, I suppose, of Jesus' life. Zechariah told by Gabriel his wife is going to have a very important baby, and his wife then, at the age of 60-plus, becoming pregnant. Gabriel coming to Mary six months later and saying she'll have an even more important baby. Mary visiting Elizabeth and finding, yep, she is pregnant, and an angel tells Joseph at the same time that what Mary claimed is true. And this baby is the son of God. It's not, it's not just a, a, a human one. And John is born, and Zechariah is able to speak again. Then we get into this week. Mary and Joseph have to go to Bethlehem to register the baby's born there. Shepherds the angels, and they come to the manger to see the baby. The baby Jesus is presented in the temple eight days later. Simeon and Anna recognize who this baby is going to be. Magi from the east, the wise men, come to visit the baby. Herod massacres all the male babies in Bethlehem, as we read, and Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt. And then a while later, uh, they're given instructions to go back and live not in uh, Judea, which is probably where they would have gone, but up to Nazareth. So, how are we going to tackle all of that stuff in just oh, 20 minutes or thereabouts? Well, let's just look at three things in the story. There is so much more you could talk about and obviously, year after year, churches all over the world think, oh, I've got to do a Christmas talk, <laughs> what shall we do? So the amount of thought and scholarship and, and, and preparation that's been given into these passages of Scripture is immense. So we'll just look at three things on the way through, shall we? First of all, I want to talk about the wanderings in this story. <laughs> the, you find the baby Jesus, who's going to be the most important person in the history of the world, is parceled about a bit. He's taken to various places, isn't he? Even before he's born, this is uh, a map of, of uh, the country he lived in. Even before he's born, his parents are in Nazareth and they have to travel down to Bethlehem to be part of a census that was being taken. Not the best thing, as I'm sure certain people here will agree, to happen just when you're about to give birth to a baby and uh, probably on a donkey or something like that. So not, not a great trip to have to do. Is this how God wants to bring his son into the world? Not only that, but in Bethlehem, he's, he's, he's uh, has to leave to go down to Egypt to get away from the wrath of Herod as the babies in the Bethlehem district are all massacred. And then when he comes back, he doesn't go back to Bethlehem, which is probably where Joseph came from, but he has to go up to Nazareth, to Mary's home, just to be safe. Why those wanderings? Well, that's the first thing. Second, you need to look at the witnesses of it because we've read about some of them. First of all, there were the shepherds who uh, came to the manger to see the baby. 
Second, there were Simeon and Anna in the temple. Third, there were the wise men. What did those witnesses contribute to the whole story? What did they see that is important for us here? And then the third thing, quite simply, is the wisdom behind it. What was God actually doing through this? When that young family, carrying the most important baby there had ever been, sorry, Seth, but the most important baby who had ever been, uh, what was God doing through sending them on a tricky journey down to Egypt and then bringing them back again? So let's look at those three things and we'll be done. First of all, the wanderings. I think all of these wanderings had an important purpose. First of all, Jesus had to go to Bethlehem to be born. You see, the claim about Jesus was that he was a king in the line of David. He was, he'd been born to be king of the Jews. And people who despised him even put that above his head as he hung on the cross. This is the king of the Jews. They didn't buy the story. One reason people didn't buy the story on the way through was that they didn't realize he'd been born in the proper place. John chapter 7, verse 42. There are people discussing Jesus, and they don't know what to make of him. Some of them asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, people that were divided because of Jesus. And that's why the Gospels want to make it absolutely crystal clear. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Because that's what the prophecy said in the Old Testament. You, Bethlehem Ephrata, although you're a little place, you will be great. For out of you will come, somebody will rule my people. And that prophecy from Micah chapter 5 um, had to be, mean that the, 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 the baby would be born in Bethlehem. It was David's tomb. It was where David had come from. It was always the most important place in the world to him. There's a story in 2 Samuel, if you remember, that David was, was, was on the run with his fighting army. He once said to them, oh, yeah, no, I'd give anything for just a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem. And three of them looked at one another and said, right, lads, let's do this. And so that night they broke into the uh, town of Bethlehem behind the enemy lines, got into the well, got a drink out of it and took it back to David. David wouldn't drink it because it was so precious. It came from a really special place, and these guys had given up so much and taken so many risks to bring it back to him. That's how much Bethlehem meant to David. And so for the Messiah to be born anywhere else wouldn't work. <laughs> and so all that people knew about Jesus in John chapter 7, he's from Galilee somewhere, hasn't he? Nazareth or some low-life place like that. And to realize that he'd been born in Bethlehem was important. Jesus had to go to Egypt to be safe. Now that's interesting, isn't it? God brought the Messiah into the world, having prophesied for hundreds of years he would come, but he was exposed to risks and danger just like any other human being, and possibly more than most of us have ever faced in our life. Nobody ever said when I was born in Craigtown Infirmary in St Andrews in 1950, oh no, John Allen has been born, it's going to be a disaster, let's massacre every child in St Andrews. No, I didn't do that. But it happened in Jesus. Incidentally, people sometimes say, oh, that couldn't have happened. You know, that's not recorded anywhere in history. Herod's massacre of those, ah, that, that's dreadful. Actually, in Bethlehem, uh, given the population size in those days, there wouldn't have been more than 50 and probably nearer 20 male infants in that category to be massacred. And that scale of massacre was something that Herod was doing all the time. I mean, he had two of his own sons killed um, uh, because he didn't like them very much. And Herod, at the end of his life, was a pretty cruel, vindictive character. So it's right in character that he would do that. And because he was doing that, Jesus had to go to Egypt to be safe. God had promised about the Messiah, in the time of my favor, I will answer you. 
in the day of salvation I will help you. So he had to keep Jesus safe. But that didn't mean that Jesus was insulated from any of the problems and shocks and disasters that can happen to us in this world. And so we need to take two things out of that, don't we? First of all, the fact that there is no guarantee that your life will not include danger and sorrow and difficulty. God does not promise you just because you're a Christian a free life. It doesn't happen. The second thing we've got to take out of it is the promise that God makes to a Messiah, he also makes to you. And through the worst of the problems that you can face, through the, the most terrible of the difficulties that life can take you through, he will be there and he will help you get out of it. He'll keep you safe one way or another. So Jesus had to go to Egypt. And third, Jesus had to go to Nazareth to be ordinary. He didn't go back to Jerusalem or Bethlehem or any of the big places. He went to a small town. Such a small town that when he started preaching, one of his earliest uh, fans, Philip, went to a friend of his called Nathaniel and said, we found the Messiah. He comes from Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? It wasn't that Nazareth was a particularly disreputable kind of a place. It was just like saying, we have found the Messiah, and he lives in the Casey Avenue, Stoke-on-Trent. It's just so ordinary. And so that, that was basically what was going on there. And Jesus went to Nazareth, I think, so that when he appeared from the rest of the people, he didn't come with any credentials. You took what you got. What you saw was what you got. There was nothing behind him like a big education or a fancy family or a, an, an imposing residence or anything like that. Jesus had to go to Nazareth to be ordinary. And so there's a, a, a logic behind those wanderings. How about the witnesses? Let's talk to them for a minute. What did the shepherds see about Jesus that was special? First of all, they saw he was good news for everyone. That was what the angels told them, wasn't it? Good news of great joy. It'll be for all the people. To you is born a saviour in the town of Bethlehem and he's going to be Christ the Lord. And for the shepherds to hear that must have been amazing. I mean, shepherds in those days were the lowest of the low. They really were. If you were a shepherd, you weren't allowed to give testimony in a law court because everybody assumed you would lie. <laughs> shepherds were known to be thieves and robbers, and you were just very careful what you did with them. It was a bit like the reputation that travellers and gypsies have today. You, you just don't know where you are because they're a bit different. They're a community on their own, and they'll pinch anything as soon as look at it. And shepherds were really disreputable. The average lifespan of a shepherd, I read, I'm not sure how, how true this is, but it was, it was in a research paper. In, in Judea in those days, a shepherd would live on average for 27 years. It was a tough, hard, outdoor life. That didn't mean there weren't any 50-year-old shepherds, you know, because that's an average. Some of them died a lot younger than that. But uh, you, if you reached the age of 60 as a shepherd and you were doing well, you were pretty much an exception. You really were. It was a tough life. It was a disreputable life. And for the angels to appear to them, that was incredible. For these particular shepherds, it's probably even more incredible because we think that these were the shepherds who were looking after flocks so that the lambs that were perfect could be taken to Jerusalem for the Passover. So they were temple shepherds. They were right on the fringe of the great religious system that ran the country. And yet, if they'd gone to the temple, they probably wouldn't have been allowed in <laughs> because they were Jewish shepherds. And it was to people like that who were on the brink of the religious practices of the country but not really allowed in there. It was them that the angels appeared to and said, listen, this is good news, boys, and it's for everybody. 
the wise men? Well, they saw, didn't they, that he's a rightful king that should be worshipped. They saw this strange astrological phenomenon, astronomical phenomenon in the sky, and they didn't know what to make of it. And incidentally, uh, if you Google it, you'll find that there are all sorts of scientific explanations for what it might have been. None of them are without problems, but all of them are possible. So please, you know, don't think that this is something that's total fantasy and myth, because it, 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 it doesn't have happened. They probably came from Chaldea, which was uh, ancient Babylonia, a place where astronomical phenomena were very, very important in predicting the future. And when they saw this, they realized something really special was going on. And they associate it with the birth of a king. And they thought it's got to be Jerusalem. I don't know how they worked all of that out because we're not told. But they saw that there was a rightful king that ought to be worshipped. And of course they went to the wrong place to start with, didn't they? They went to Jerusalem because that was the capital. And somehow in their mind they had to come to terms with the fact that this king, whom they had reasoned their way through to, whom they'd followed across the desert, was being born in a stable. Or at least in a hostel in somebody's house. And that being the case, laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, what kind of king was this? But they realized he was a king, and so they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh anyway. And the third thing, Simeon and Anna, what about them? They saw that this baby was the fulfillment of God's promises. What was important to them? Because these two old people hanging around the temple were meditating all day long on, God, you've said this, and it's not happened yet. And Simeon believed that God had said to him, you'll see it, Simeon. You'll see my saviour, the one I've promised, before you die. And this morning, walking into the temple, there's this small baby with a poor couple. We know they're poor because of the sacrifice that they made, those two birds. You know, if you were wealthy, you had to make a much, much more important sacrifice. And so they gave all they had. And clearly they had no money. You know, they've been living in a stable, which is not good for your appearance and uh, they'd uh, just traveled down from the north and they must have looked absolutely shattered even with eight days to recover from the whole thing and uh, Simeon claps eyes on this young couple and suddenly God says to him Simeon that's the one that's the messiah that's the anointed one that's the king that's the savior that's the deliverer right there that eight day old baby and Anna similarly Perhaps because she saw Simeon and, and, and was amazed at what was going on, starts telling everybody, look at this baby, look at this baby, this is what we've been waiting for. And so, right from the start, they saw he was a fulfillment of all those promises going back hundreds of years. And so those three witnesses, you get a, 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 a comprehensive picture of who Jesus is going to be. There's one more thing we'll talk about, and we'll finish with that. How all of this represents the wisdom of God that had been going on for all of these centuries. Let's look at that map again. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He went to Egypt, and he went back to Nazareth. Now, that's just places on the map for us. If you were steeped, as Simeon and Anna were, and as many people in Jesus' day were, in the history of Israel, and the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament, you would understand just what those things meant. For one thing, being born in Bethlehem, meant royalty. It meant that Jesus really was a king and the wise men had it right. He'd been born in the line of David, in the city of David. He was qualified to be God's servant and uh, who would be uh, the king, who'd be given a kingdom, an everlasting dominion that would never pass away. And he went down to Egypt. And Egypt, of course, is an important place. 
in Israelite history. Right through the Bible. Egypt is a symbol of the bondage that the Israelites were once in, when you had to make bricks without straw, when they were slaves of Pharaoh. And then it's also a symbol of the tremendous liberation there was when the people of Israel, against all possibility, got rid of the bondage of Egypt, got across the Red Sea and into their own promised land. And the, 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 the freedom that was brought through the exodus is something that, down through history, has meant so much to so many people. Think of how many um, spirituals, for instance, uh, black people in America wrote about Moses and the liberation and how the exodus came to be a symbol of the freedom that they were looking for as well. And the, the exodus to the Jewish mind was God's greatest demonstration in history of how he was able to break out, of, break his people out of jail and rescue them. And so, Matthew quotes Hosea, you might have noticed as we read it, out of Egypt I have called my son. And so Jesus goes into Egypt, the land of bondage, escapes what Herod's trying to do to him, and comes out again as a symbol of the rescue that God wants to bring through him to everybody else. And so uh, you could say that the, 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 the uh, Simeon and Anna were right as well. God's rescuer had arrived. And how about the recovery? Well, this is where you see that the shepherds were right as well. This is for everybody. Jesus goes to Nazareth. And Nazareth, well, it was a no-account town, but it had been mentioned in the Old Testament. And we've looked at that passage a couple of times in the last few weeks. Isaiah chapter 9, which talks about Galilee, the way of the sea, Galilee of the Gentiles, that whole area, the land of the tribe of Zebulun. And it says, you, know, you are always the first bit of uh, the holy land to be conquered as tribes and invaders pour in from the north. You've been knocked about a bit in history. You've been in bondage. You've been in darkness. But to you, a light has dawned. And it talks about somebody who is going to come who will be the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful Counselor. And it talks about that child growing up in there and a light spreading from there that will light up the whole world. God wants not only to rescue people, he wants to bring them back to recovery as well, to give them strength, to give them purpose, to give them peace and shalom, to give them a future. And so in those early stories about Jesus, you see a pattern in, in, emerging, don't you? It's about like the story we started with about the, the wheelbarrows. When you look at what's going on in there, there's more happening than you might realize on the surface of things. And God has brought somebody into existence through the birth of Jesus who is going to change everything in the world. And that's what Matthew and Luke are trying to get across. Next week, we go on to talk about, well, not next week, but the next time we do this, we'll go on to talk about how Jesus started and how his life started to fulfill the promise and the hints of those early years. But for the moment, let's just take courage from the fact that God had it all planned to start with. That he did it in just the right way to show who Jesus was, to make it possible for people to believe in him and for him to be uh, God's king, identified with us, passing through everything we've been through so that he could bring a triumph and a victory that we'd never have seen otherwise. Steve, I'll hand back to you. Thank you.